Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Today in the studio is Mark Pittman. He is the CEO of Concord Leadership Group, and he's known around the country as the fundraising coach for nonprofits. Um, he is also known really more and more around the world now as a fundraising expert. In fact, his book, Ask Without Fear, has been translated into several languages, including Polish, Dutch, Spanish, and Mandarin. And the thing he's going to talk about today, among many other things, is this issue. How can you and I, who are involved with nonprofits, Begin to Ask Without Fear, just like his book title. He really seeks to remove the fear from fundraising. And let's face it, for everyone involved with nonprofits, fundraising is part of the job. Whether you're a board member, an ED, or just a a supporter of a nonprofit, you are busy raising funds for your nonprofit. And so Mark's going to speak to how we can do this without fear. I think you're going to really enjoy what Mark has to say. Enjoy today's show. Mark, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you on this show. And we wanted to start out with just having you tell us your story. Tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you become the fundraising coach? Wow. Well, thanks. We, uh, you know, I, I used to make fun of people that got married out of college and got a job at the college I graduated from, and I did both. <laughs> so um, I fell in love with just kind of the nonprofit space. I got a job in admissions, started helping people find out if the college I, I had gone to was a good fit for them. And but with a couple of years in, I kind of hit a glass ceiling in that office. It looked like everybody was lifer, a lifer in that position. So I moved over to development. First ask was for $100,000. My boss kept saying, I'm going to take you on a call, I'll take you on calls. Never did because it kind of felt awkward. He had good friends. You know, his relationships were longstanding and to bring a new person along emphasize the transaction as opposed to relationship. So finally, I just created my own opportunity and asked for $100,000 for a gift and fell flat on my face, but loved it. It was amazing. I didn't burn the relationship. Um, it was just, I was hooked. I mean, that whole chess match of fundraising and, and meeting organizational needs of a, a nonprofit with donors' needs and values, oh, I couldn't believe I got to do that. So um, back then in the late late 90s, I had my first seminar where I, I shared some of the thoughts that I had on on the way I was leading the program, my aspect of the program, and people loved it. So I started blogging in the late 90s, started speaking. And I over the years, actually, this is to, to try to keep <laughs> – Thinking like a buck fifty answer instead of a $10 answer. One thing that was really interesting to me over the years was we have consultants and the consulting model that most consultants seem to use seems like a, like a 20th century kind of model where there wasn't a lot of information and the people that had the information could then share it at will with people. But we live in a Google age where all the information is out there. It's just a matter of there's a lot of bad information, too. So we need, you know, coaching seemed like a better model to help me curate the information that I was trying to figure out. 
And the coaches I had throughout my career were coaches that didn't know fundraising or nonprofit leadership, but they helped me be better at who I was and what I'm at my job than the consultants. The consultants didn't seem to be eager to help me grow. They seemed to be eager to hook me up for the next next gig of theirs, next billable gig. And um, so when I got an opportunity about 2003, I went to Franklin Covey, got certified as a executive coach. I already had a master's in organizational leadership and uh, started full-time coaching nonprofit leaders. It's a huge privilege. We've got some of the best people in our sector. Oh, it's so fun to hear your own story, and I could tell you have a lot of passion for what you do. So let's continue in that vein and uh, tell us a little bit more why it's so important to you personally that you apply your skill set as a speaker and as a fundraiser to support specifically nonprofits. Wow. Well, I think that nonprofits, I think <laughs> my wife once told me that nonprofit sector is the only sector that seems to reward dysfunction and codependency. Um, <laughs> there's a, a lot of good people that are putting up with behaviors or systems that wouldn't be tolerated in the for-profit or government sectors. So I think they have a lot of good resources for those sectors. But what I love about the nonprofit sector and what I've tried to do my whole whole career so far is have not only the, the large investment offerings, but also the $15 book or the $19 Nonprofit Academy membership website, because I wanted to be able to have, um, I, I firmly believe that Strong, leaders in the nonprofit sector deserve the best training regardless of budget. And so I've tried to make things that are, that are able to be you know, approachable from all different budgets. Uh, the reason I do this is, is just because we have the best people in this field, in this sector. People come here on a values basis um, either because they haven't been able to, to invest in their values and their time with other jobs they've been in or because they see a need and they want to fix it. Um, and I love working with people like that, that are really in touch with making the world a better place, whether it's conserving land or spaying pets or feeding kids or taking care of the elderly, whatever the cause is. Um, I love working with people that have that kind of motivational drive that's really deep. Um, I, making profit's not a bad thing, and that's for another sector, but I love working with the leaders in our sector. Mark, thanks for sharing your motivation of why you get involved with nonprofits. I resonate with the reasons uh, that you shared. Now, you've obviously worked with a lot of nonprofits. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the most important role a nonprofit serves in our communities? Couple of, the, the most important role, I guess there's two things that just popped to mind. One was the conscious of our communities. Often, um, the we can get skewed in the for-profit sector uh, with thinking about serving serving stakeholders or doing other things like that um, and forget our, the conscious about taking care of the land or taking care of people. Um, not all are like that. I'm not slamming the whole sector. But um, I feel like our nonprofit sector can often be that conscience of, of kind of catching the people that are outside the norm, filling in the cracks, whether it's uh, the soup kitchen or whether it's uh, gifted and talented kids at school or the kids that need extra help. There's all sorts of different ways that we can be that conscience. Um, the other thing is, I, I really strongly believe, and this sounds cheesy, but I believe that the nonprofit sectors in our communities, whether it's churches and faith organizations or um, more traditional 501c3 nonprofits or even like the chamber type nonprofits, 501c4s, um, there are associations. They're sort of a glue that connects people together of various groups. And um, 
brings back that community aspect to our living next to each other, but we don't necessarily know our neighbors anymore. But in a nonprofit, there's sort of that glue that brings back the community aspect to to 21st century life that I think many of us yearn for, but don't know where to find that. Got it. Well, you certainly have worked with a lot of nonprofits. So I'm curious, in your opinion, what are the traits of a healthy nonprofit? Oh, wow. If you had said a sick nonprofit, I could have told you. <laughs> the healthy nonprofit is a much smaller list. That's good. Um, it starts with the board, I would say. The healthy nonprofit board understands its role as governance. It's hiring and firing the CEO or the executive director, and it's keeping that vision going. Um, it is trusting the person they hire to do the job they hired her to do, but it's also challenging in a friendly way um, and helping, helping be the ambassadors in the community, helping to be the, the obviously giving themselves, but also helping bring resources, whether it's money, talent, or time into that are nonprofit. Then it goes to a CEO that has uh, the support and the backing of the people that hired her, which isn't a given, but in a healthy one it would, and has worked with the board to set a strategic objective for the organization, whether it's a few years out or a lifetime goal, or they have a, they, they know where they're going and their goals for the CEO evaluation, which we've just done the re released research that shows 60, I think it's 62% of CEOs aren't getting any sort of annual review at all from their board. So there is a healthy review mechanism in a healthy nonprofit. But there's also those goals for the flow from the strategic plan into the CEO's to-do list for the year. And then she can then in turn share those with her staff and saying, these are the organization's goals for the year. How do your roles fit in with this? How can we resource that? Um, unfortunately, what I see happen mostly is the, the board sets seemingly random criteria for the CEO, raise the fundraising by this per X percent, uh, not usually based in reality, but based in something else. Um, it seems like the right thing to say, but, you know, or have employee satisfaction go up by this percent or just certain outputs that they'll put measurements on. And the CEO will take that as this is what I'm going to get graded on at the end of the year. And then she'll turn to her staff and, and try to be really collaborative and facilitative coach like and say, well, what do you, what can I do to help you excel at your jobs without giving them the context of what the board's organization's goals are because she just sees those as the board's objectives for her job, not for the organization. And so she spends the rest of the year getting ground between the, C, the staff saying, we need this from you, we need this from you, we need this from you, and her helping with them, but knowing it, it's not going to be on her report card. The board chair isn't going to ask her about that. Um, so I, I think in a healthier nonprofit, you have that integrity of the strategic plan really helping everybody be on the same page and setting the objectives and, and serving as a place for mid-course corrections. You just kind of have a, a basis to know, oh, we have this new opportunity. Is it one that's in the in something that we want to entertain? Yes or no? And it's good either way, but we have some sort of objective criteria that we're using. Uh, because we've all agreed on this already. We've had these important conversations. No, that's really good. In fact, that leads to my next question. So first, you started about uh, healthy uh, traits of a nonprofit organization. It starts with the board, is what you're saying, and then the board's oversight of a CEO or executive director. Now let's go into uh, what do you find are character traits of an effective leader of a nonprofit organization? Um, you're a leadership coach. Obviously, you work with a lot of nonprofit leaders. Um, what are some of the traits that you see that are effective, and what are some of the pitfalls that you see in leaders that are really struggling? struggling in their role in their nonprofits? 
Well, one of the things that uh, seems interesting is even though the board has the oversight in the healthy nonprofit, it doesn't always start that way. So sometimes the CEO has to drive the board to help them become that healthy nonprofit. So they're not micromanaging, they're not meddling in employee affairs or day-to-day stuff. But also, the founders of nonprofits, often most of our organizational problems, I think, start our organizational structures and nonprofits are because really well-intentioned people see a problem and they fix it. And then as they're fixing it, they, they build a car, uh, more people around them. There's an urgency. Uh, there's a kind of almost just, just it just makes sense to them. So they're going to fix it. And people start either giving to it or joining them on their staff. And it's a really bad way to create an organizational structure because then you develop a board around you that the a lot of founders don't realize the minute they start a nonprofit, they give up any ownership of that organization and they give it to the community, they give it to the board. Uh, and that's a really hard pill to swallow if you didn't realize that's what you did. So when the board starts making decisions that aren't in sync with the leader, that can be really challenging and that's where you get some founder syndrome issues. Um, a healthy and healthy strong leaders though understand that and understand that the board is they serve at the the behest of the board or, or the pleasure of the board and to get to some of your character traits, I think one of them is is the humility to always be leading. Sort of like a, a successful coach you need, needs to be ha- being able to be coached. They need to have coaches for them. Uh, when I pastored a church, I knew that the only safe pastors were the pastors that had pastors. Um, so there's always that you need to know who you're looking to as a leader. Who are you learning from? Because until you're able to follow, you're really not safe as a coach as a leader. Uh, you, so that's one of the cra- I think another trait is just being curious. There's a huge ability that you can unlock if you're curious about why did somebody respond that way? Well, or why did that irritate me when that happened? Or why is that person fascinated in this area? Or why is that donor dedicating their life to this particular career objective? And that can be really helpful in not only you understanding the world around you, but also you figuring out how to message and cast your vision in a way that connects with their interests. No, you bring up a really, really good point. I mean, my question to you is, how do you teach someone to become more curious? You know, um, when you do leadership coaching, do you, uh, is it one-on-one mentoring? Is it books that you have them read? Is it uh, a combination of both? Like, how do you create that sense of wanting to be curious and to learn on a regular basis in order to become a better leader? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and, and not everybody has it. There are many of successful leaders that just really don't care. Um, they get stuff done because part of the successful leader, being a successful leader, is the ability to get stuff done. There is that also. So if you're just curious and you're not moving in a direction, then I'm not sure I'd put it as a healthy leader. But one of the, one of the biggest skills that are sets of questions that I found to help with the curiosity thing was, uh, through a guy named Bob Berg. He wrote a book called Endless Referrals. He's now, it's now, um, looking at my bookshelf, it's now changed to something else. But if you just Googled Bob Berg and endless referrals, you'd get to the book that is the most recent version. He had five questions that every networker should ask. Um, and I found the first couple of them to be really helpful. The first one was if you're like in a, a line at Rotary or Kiwanis or some service organization, you're in the buffet line and you ask somebody what they do. The first question that they ask after that is, huh? So tell me, how did you get into the widget business? People love to tell their story. And Stephen Covey said that most people are, are um, really kind of just like a kid, if your cousin ever put you under the pool water and held you down and held you down longer than you think you could, everything inside you is screaming, I need oxygen. 
He said, most people live their life screaming, I need psychological oxygen. I need someone to hear my story. Will somebody please just listen to me? And as nonprofit leaders, we get to have those conversations with our board members. We get to have them with donors. We get to have them with clients. It's really interesting how many people are screaming for that kind of information or that story. So if you just ask them, so how did you get into the widget business? That will often lead you on a whole wonderful route. Um, and then, the, you know, the first question actually before that, and sorry for convoluting it, is I like to ask, what do you do when you're not here? What do you do when you're not standing in a buffet line at the, at the Rotary? What do you do when you're not at a trade show? What do you do when you're not at and standing in the parking lot talking to me? And the reason I ask that is that, especially now in the 21st century, people have a lot of different work options or lifestyle options. Um, and I know that when my wife, who we made a decision early on in our marriage that we we're going to live on my income, um, and she, she was going to, we we're going to have one parent at home and it was going to be her. And it was more because of just the jobs and, and income goals that we had. Um, but whenever people ask her, what do you do for work? It felt like a second class citizen to say I'm an at home parent. So I don't ask them what you do for work. I like to ask them, what do you do when you're not here? And Rob, you'll be surprised. People will not always lead with work. Some of them will say, oh, I love to rock climb. And they'll go off on this whole hobby thing. Or, you know, I actually am studying the habitat for, of our um, watershed to help protect it. So you can get into whole different areas. And that leads you to the second question, which is, how do you get started in that? And then they'll tell you. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I love that description of what it means to be a good leader is listening to people, right? And, and everyone does have a story to share. And I do think I've learned in my own experience, um, listening to people, it's so critical and it's often overlooked as a leadership skill. In fact, when you talked about how um, nonprofits, once you start one, you kind of give it away to the community. I've never heard someone say it quite like that, but that's an interesting point because I know like for here at the Christian Center of Park City, you know, our goal is to meet people at their point of need and you don't know what their needs are unless you listen to them and you understand what their needs are. And so I completely agree that um, it's so critical as a leader to develop your listening skills. That sounds like one of the key traits. Well, and you don't give up your authority, though. So that's part of the, the tension is that you still know what your strategic objective is. You still know why you're there. When you're with a donor, you know that it's going to eventually lead to an ask. If not this meeting, the next one. Um, and there are times, like for fundraising, when I'm meeting with someone for the first time, I have to have the humility as a leader to realize this isn't about me. It's about the donor. And part of that humility is counterintuitive. Part of it is I, I had one leader that was bragging about, oh, I don't ask on the first date. We were in a capital campaign. We needed to get those major gifts in. And these people had long relationships with their nonprofit and over decades. And he still would not ask on the first date. It sounded very high and pious. But it was I, it, I had to try to drive it home to him that this isn't their first date. They've been dating the organization for a long time. You're just another partner in the, the process, and they're expecting you to add, cast your vision and ask them to invest in it. Um, so part of it is getting yourself out of the way of just because it's your first time meeting them doesn't mean it's their first time meeting your cause. And being willing to ask. But even if you're, you know, knowing what your objective is as you're asking the story and not pushing it, but if you find out that they're totally passionate about the watershed area and your organization happens to be in a watershed project, you could say something very simple like, hey, look, Joe, I didn't come here to ask you about this right now, but we're doing exactly what you're talking about. I had no idea you were that interested. Could I ask you, can I tell you more about our, our fundraising goal in that area now, or should I call you in a couple of weeks? 
so much to unpack in that. I didn't come this time to do that. It is going to be something I'm going to do. But this wasn't the goal this time. I want having the honesty and the integrity to tell you that. But then you're testing the clothes. Can I talk about it now or should I call back? And if they say talk about it now, you're golden. If they say call back, you're golden too because you're not nagging them. You're just being a person of integrity and, and following up as they pro- ask you to do. Thank you, Mark. Very, very helpful insights on that. And this leads us into your wheelhouse of fundraising. Um, I want to talk about fundraising. Obviously, you're the fundraising coach. And so what in your role have you seen to be the biggest challenges facing the nonprofit sector when it comes to fundraising? Well, part of it's not being able to cast a vision. Um, I worked one of my one of my roles as a head of a fundraising fundraising office for a hospital was uh, with an interim CEO who for, I didn't realize just as a fundraiser, I was naturally creating casting vision because I wanted to involve donors in something bigger than themselves. And what was weird was that there was no vision coming from the CEO. And it was that I realized six months into her tenure, her one-year tenure, was that she was just a placeholder. And it wasn't a bad thing. The organization needed, a multi-million dollar organization needed to have somebody keeping the, the plate spinning. But she didn't want to obligate the next CEO for some long-term strategic objective. She wanted to keep that clear. Well, that's great organizationally. It's really hard fundraising-wise. Um, at the Concord Leadership Group, we just report, released a nonprofit sector leadership report that showed that while CEOs say that t- casting a compelling vision is in their top three priorities, the vast majority don't even know how to start one. So that's something that um, I, I think is one of the big things is, is creating a vision and not being afraid to to say we're not really sure where the vision is but what we think is where we think we're going as we listen to the community and as we look at our own resources and do our research is this is where we're going to try to move the needle um that that is a huge thing the other part is um <laughs> thinking that people don't know what you're, you're there for they under people are really savvy nowadays rob people know that they this is nonprofits run on gen, on donations and so being willing to not not stumble over the ask. So one of the things I train the people I I coach is to talk to the steering wheel, because you're going to anyway. If you make a solicitation, all of us have had the the experience of either making a solicitation or just driving away from a meeting and then thinking about all the things we should have said. Oh, man, I wish I said this. Oh, this would have been a great thing to add to it. So I say talk to the steering wheel beforehand. If you know you're going to ask someone to invest $25,000, practice it before you get there. Everything in our fundraising that we're supposed, that we should try to do is remove the obstacles to the donor actually hearing the request. So we should have a clear request of a dollar amount and all of the obstacles removed. And part of the obstacles is our own tension and stress about asking. So if we're practicing in our, uh, to the steering wheel, nowadays it's okay to talk to your steering wheel because everybody thinks you're on a Bluetooth. They have no idea that you're just talking to yourself in the car. So you could say, would you consider giving $25,000? Would you consider $5,000 a year for the next five years? Would you consider, twenty? you know, I'd like to ask you to consider $25,000. I'd like you to consider a $25,000 gift. Would a $25,000 gift be in our ballpark, in your ballpark? Um, that all those types of things helps you when you get there to be able to say it without all the stumbling intention that you may feel. Because that stumbling intention, the donor doesn't know it's you. They think maybe it's their own intention intuition. So the other part is the in fundraising, integrity and honesty are the two biggest tools in our tools kit. So if you're in front of a prospect, you're about to ask them for money and you're totally stressed, just admit it. Clear the air. Hey, you know, and this works really well for board members, but it could definitely work for nonprofit leaders too. Just saying, you know what, I'm totally I'm so sorry, I'm nervous about this. I'm really excited about our project. 
fundraising is just something that's not one of the things I enjoy as much as others do. Um, the minute you just clear the air, you let them know that tension in the room is not your gut. It's not your intuition saying this is a bad thing. It's me. I'm broadcasting that tension, and it's just because I'm uncomfortable. Um, and often the prospect will start rooting for you because they don't want to fundraise either. <laughs> go for it. You can ask me. Go. You, you, you go. Uh, so that is that, and then that clears the air. So you could say, would you consider a gift of twenty five thousand dollars, or a hundred thousand dollars, or twenty five dollars, whatever the ask amount is. And that is so well said. I know for me, I'm an executive director and I still at times struggle with asking money depending on the amount, of course. Um, but it's one of those skills you have to develop over and over again. So what you're sharing again is so practical. Um, and I like your humor that you add to it. Uh, very important, uh, the skill that we have to develop as nonprofit leaders. What, the, what you said about the amount you're asking is really important because we all have a mental cap in our, our brain based on our family, our faith tradition, our experience and our ability to handle money. Um, that that always caps us. I was working with one uh, crisis pregnancy center that sh- they're starting a direct mail appeal, and they said, "If you would you consider a gift of X or Y, or if you've been particularly blessed, a thousand dollars this year." And I had them removed it, or if you've been particularly blessed, because there are people that give a hundred dollars just as sort of you know that's their tip to the nonprofit, yeah, every nonprofit that asks. But there are some that give a thousand. There are some that give more, and we don't know who those people are. So we shouldn't let them think, oh, I'm doing something particularly helpful by giving a thousand when it's just their $10 bill for other people. Um, so yeah, we have to be very aware of where our parameter, where our, when we bump into something that's sort of an object, uh, a hindrance or a uh, obstacle for us, we have to be aware of that as leaders of, oh, okay, a $25,000 ask is easy for me. But when I start asking for a hundred thousand or a million, that's when I start really feeling like I'm overreaching. Um, and you need to get over it because you're not overreaching. You have to let the donor be the adult and tell you that it's overreaching. And if you ask well, they'll feel comfortable telling you that without a feeling like you put them on the spot in an awkward way. Love it. Love it. Very helpful. Thank you. And that kind of leads us to the next question. I, you know, it's related to fundraising, but maybe at a little bit different angle. You know, I've had a lot of guests recently on the show talk about some of the new trends going on in nonprofits when it comes to uh, fundraising and how they generate revenue. And one of the trends has been uh, learning from for-profit businesses and some of those that are becoming more socially entrepreneurial, if that's a word. Um, and so here's my question to you. You see a lot of different nonprofits. Do you see that there is a trend towards nonprofits? Profits needing to add, say, a creative revenue stream that's mission-related that becomes uh, puts them more into a camp of a social entrepreneur? Or do you think that maybe uh, your advice to um, traditional nonprofits would be just, hey, add some more social media to your website, uh, be a little bit more savvy with um, the skills that you're already having and, and the type of fundraising you're already doing? Uh, what would you say to traditional nonprofits when it comes to this new trend of social entrepreneurship? <laughs> well, wow, so there's so many nuances to that question. I don't like to shit on anyone. So if they want to go social entrepreneurial, that's fine. But when you say traditional fundraising, the traditional way of fundraising stinks. We're really bad at it. We've been doing it for decades. We've been getting supposedly better, but we're still not getting anybody in the United States to give more than 2% of their income as a nation. It's still 2% of, of discretionary income that's going, even for in church settings where they're talking about tithers, it's supposed to be 10%. Statistically, people are only giving 2%. So with all that we've been studying since World War II, we haven't gotten Americans to be more generous. And we're a generous country, but there's still so much. Can you imagine if that 2% doubled 
what more good could be done in the world and if we got up to even, you know, 10%. So to answer, uh, I think it's healthy to not be dependent on one income stream. That I was just talking to a, a board chair who understood that her most of her organization's money used to come from grants, and now it had flip-flopped and it was coming from individuals. So good for her for tracking that over the years. That was really helpful that that organization had done the tracking and, and oriented her enough to know that this is where we're, our shifting focus is and we know that we have different income streams here. And if that happens to be charging for fees or selling stuff or creating something to sell, there's totally good reasons for doing that, understandable. Um, but I think that there's – I haven't seen a big shift necessarily. What I think is going to be confusing for donors is that it's no longer just doing good or buying product. It's There's all sorts of ambiguity in the marketplace, which is great for consumers because you can buy a product and know that you're also supplying shoes for somebody else or you're doing – you're getting stuff you need and doing good. So the corporations are getting much more uh, in tune with social corporate social responsibility. There are B corporations that have part of their bottom line is to do good uh, and serve in the community. So I think what nonprofits are going to have to start doing is wondering, asking themselves simple questions that are really profound, like, should we should we even be a nonprofit anymore? Should we go into a for-profit? Should we be a, a facility rental place? Or should we do something else? Should we approach our entire work differently. Um, if they don't want to have that conversation, we have so much further we can go in fundraising. It, there's, we're so bad at it as a sector that if we just start telling the stories better, and, and one of the kind of counterintuitive things that we're finding with the nonprofit storytelling conference attendees is that when they just remove themselves from the picture and they take the donor and they equate it with the impact, you donor are so smart because you're having this impact in the world with your gift that they're seeing donors actually thank them for asking multiple times a year instead of just once a year. And they're having their retention rates double and triple. And right now, the national norm in the United States is if you have 10 new donors from last year, take a Sharpie and cross out six of those names because only four of them are coming back this year. I mean, that's atrocious. We'd never accept that at a company. Uh, we'd need 90 to 97% customer attention. So I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that we can use as a sector and and increase our fundraising significantly um, through storytelling and putting the donor in focus instead of being so concerned about how we come across and what we look like. Very interesting insights. Okay, one more question then. Um, what is the role of social media when it comes to nonprofits' fundraising efforts? Well, it's... It's it's the whole. I mean, fundraising and social media is the new, the sexy new object in the room. Um, I, the way I teach fundraising uh, is, it, the, I use the acronym REAL: researching. R stands for research. E stands for engage. A stands for ask. And L stands for love. Um, and I think social media acts really well in three out of the four. I think you can do a lot of researching because we put a lot of information in our personal profiles. And if your Google Plus is now falling out of favor, but there are still there are still people that have a lot of information on Google Plus, LinkedIn, you don't have to necessarily be connected to see everything. Facebook, you do have to be connected, but you can still follow people. You can use Google Alerts to put in donors' names and get pinged whenever something goes on the web about them. So you can do a lot of research about your prospect, what they're saying or what people are saying about you and about who they are. Um, you can engage with them too. There are certain ways you can engage with your board or you can have your board engage with your nonprofit's message by liking and sharing, which helps the algorithms. And most social media platforms share your message even more, more widely. 
Asking tends to be best face-to-face -face if you're asking for large amounts. If you're asking for small amounts and repeated gifts, you can definitely use crowdsourced day, giving days or something like that. But um, those that's not where people have really found the sweet spot, despite the fact that you'll hear about a nice bucket challenge that went well one year or somebody else's. I had people come to me back in 2008 saying, well, you know, Barack Obama raised this much money. Why can't we as a small rural hospital healthcare system raise that much money too uh, on Facebook? So, I mean, there some of the fundraising expectations are unrealistic, although there is great potential for it there. But I don't think that's where social media is particularly good. Uh, but then thanking donors is great too. We can have little videos and show donors what the impact of, of their gift is done. We can um, do all sorts of other relationship building. It kind of allows us to scale the personal touch and the uniqueness of the impact that donors are having. Well, this has been great, Mark. Thank you again for your time. And this is one of those podcasts that uh, I'd like to spend another 30 minutes or more an hour, you know, asking you questions because there's so much to cover and you have so many great insights. Thank you for taking your time. Uh, I encourage those who are listening, you probably want to replay this and rewind it multiple times because there's so much that Mark is sharing with us. Um, thank you, Mark. Um, I also want to give the opportunity again for people who want to find out more about the Concord Leadership Group um, website. How do they find out more about you, Mark? And where can they go to find out more about all that you do? Well, thank you so much. So, um, the, I'm always on Twitter, Mark A. Pittman, M-A-R-C-A-P, as in Peter I-T-M-A-N. Well, not always, but I always respond there. Um, the, the leadership stuff is on ConcordLeadershipGroup.com. If you go to ConcordLeadershipGroup.com slash report, you can get the, uh, nonprofit sector leadership report for free. I also have a special training if you do slash CEOs that has three different things that I take coaching clients through that help leaders not be forced into the model that often they feel like they're forced into a model that's not them. So it frees them up to lead in the way that they, they are hardwired to lead. But then all the fundraising stuff, fundraisingcoach.com has been around for over a decade and has ton, hundreds of articles and blog posts and tools and stuff up there too. Mark, thanks again. It's been a real honor having you on the show. Uh, truly, thanks for sharing your insights with us. And those who are listening, uh, again, this is Mark Pittman, CEO of the Concord Leadership Group. He's also known as the fundraising coach around the country. He's becoming more and more well-known around the world as a fundraising expert. His book, Ask Without Fear, it's been translated into several languages, including Polish, Dutch, Spanish, and Mandarin, among others. Um, so go get your book, uh, Ask Without Fear. Amazon has it. And then, of course, you can go to the websites Mark just listed to find out more about about Mark. What a great time. And thanks again, Mark, for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. A lot of fun. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you're wondering how to find us, check us out on iTunes by typing in Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should pop up. We also encourage you, uh, when you go on, let us know what you think. Give us a review. You know, if you really liked it, give us a good review. You know, the more uh, people that hear this podcast, the better. So we encourage you to get on iTunes, check it out, give us a review, give us a rating. And then also, if you just want to find us on the web, you can go to nonprofitleadershippodcast.com and then uh, you go to my website, Rob harder.com in both places you'll find this podcast there well until next time thanks for listening keep making your world better